0: I'd like to take a moment now to tell you about my favorite co-parenting app, Fair. There are other apps out there, but Fair is the only one that I recommend to my clients. We know that divorce is never easy, and when children are in the picture, it can be really tricky, especially when you're trying to communicate with your ex, and that's a challenge. Now there's an app with you and your kids in mind. It's called Fair, F-A-Y-R. FAIR is the easiest, most intuitive, and conflict-defusing co-parenting app on the market. It helps to eliminate misunderstandings while also improving communication between co-parents. Here's what the FAIR app can do. It has a time-sharing calendar, documentable text messaging, an expense tracker, a GPS check-in, and by the way, no one else has that, a monthly parenting report, a private journal, a file vault, and importantly, You can export all of the records into a convenient and time and date stamped PDF when you need it for your attorney or for court, and there's a Spanish version of the app as well. So subscribe at BeFair.com, that's B-E-F-A-Y-R.com, and then download Fair from the App Store or Google Play. You can go to fair.com for more details and use the discount code SusanG18 to receive 20% off.
1: Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. There's certain things that just stand out in certain restraining orders where you see the red flags, like this is dangerous. This person, her or his life is at risk here and you have to convey that message.
0: Hello and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today I'm joined by one of my longtime friends and colleagues in Connecticut, Attorney Uswa Khan, who's here to help us today with the issue of restraining orders. So uh, first, Uswa, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you.
1: Oh, Thank you, Susan, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be talking to you and seeing you again. I know we were just talking, usually
0: we're emailing these days or texting. My listeners know I bring on my friends and colleagues, you know, wherever I can, because I know so, I'm so lucky to know a wealth of professionals who are not only experts in their areas, but are truly fantastic people. You're very much at the top of that oh, list. You. And, you know, it being this episode, we just were talking about this, this episode's going to air in October and october is domestic violence awareness month um serious topic Something that absolutely needs awareness. We need to bring more awareness to it. And so I knew I wanted to do an episode around domestic violence and around restraining orders because there's so much misunderstanding and um, just a need for knowledge there, especially for those who are victims of domestic violence. And I immediately thought of you, reached out to you, and you, you know, we just talked about this a couple of days ago, and here you are, we're taping the show. So again, I thank you for coming. And I, I know that this is gonna be extremely helpful for listeners. So thank you. You're welcome. And that's that's the point. You know, let me tell people why I reached out to you. So Uswa is an attorney in Connecticut. We practiced together for you're coming up on almost 20 years of, of practice. Um, and we've known each other since we had a case together. Like you were my opposing counsel eons ago. Then we shared office space, and we've just known each other in a variety of different ways. Uswa has always been been one of my go-to people if I needed to refer a case. For the past couple of years, you have been a staff attorney at the Family Justice Center in Connecticut and that serves and assists Victims of domestic violence. So, you know, sadly for you and for your clients, you've been immersed in this world of domestic violence for a couple of years. Yes. And and you're not there any longer, but we're going to be talking about resources for people at the end of this episode. I do also want to point out to our listeners, you and I talked about the importance of making sure everyone understands. You're licensed to practice in Connecticut. I'm licensed to practice in Connecticut, California any advice or anything that you hear here may be very specific to those states. So we're really going to try and talk at a high level. And we strongly urge you to reach out to your, your local court system, to a local domestic violence center, and or to an attorney in your area for more specific advice. That's very important to understand. Let's dive into domestic violence restraining orders or temporary restraining orders or protective order. i mean there's a million different ways people talk about them so let's i'm thinking let's start there
1: a protective order gets entered almost automatically police gets called to your house there's an arrest made most likely the police will give you a protective order and send the person who harmed you away from your house. And then there's a court arraignment, there's a hearing, but that protective order is a criminal protective order. It usually protects you. If you have children, it might protect them at least until that first court date. And then sometimes longer, six months, a year. I've seen protective orders that extend for 20 years because the crime was so hein- like heinous. So that's criminal. It's automatic. You don't have to do anything. With the temporary restraining orders, It's a little more trickier because you have to file an ex parte affidavit. You have to go to court and fill out an affidavit, let the judge know why it is that you are seeking the court to protect you from this person because it it comes under like a civil protective order category. And it's against somebody who's been in an intimate relationship with you or somebody who resides with you, uh, somebody who's related to you. And that's the protective order. There's also a civil protective order, but they a temporary restraining order applies to those three people that i just mentioned and so you write your affidavit you submit if you have any text messages or any pictures or a police report you might want to submit that as an attachment and the judge will get those like the restraining order and usually within like an hour or two they'll rule on it and there'll be a marshal in court the marshal takes the papers delivers it to the other person And so once that initial restraining order is granted, it's good for two weeks. If you put on your affidavit that your person who you're afraid of has a firearm, then the court will expedite that restraining order and have the hearing within a week.
0: Yeah, so I just want to, because I want to back up a bit, because there's a lot in there for people to understand. And I think this is what makes it so complicated for people. Um, So first, you said ex
1: parte. You have to go to court ex parte. What does that mean? So ex parte just means that the other party's not there to defend themselves about what you're writing on that affidavit. So it means that you just walk into court and fill out the application. You don't have to show service on the other side. You don't have to get them to prove anything. It's just your word that the judge is looking
0: at. Right, So and you referenced that. I think it's important that people understand it's your word on an affidavit, and an affidavit is a sworn statement, right? You're swearing that the information you're giving to the court is true and accurate.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's a key part. Um, And I love that you mentioned the affidavit because when I was in Connecticut and helped clients at times prepare the paperwork to go into court for this initial ex parte uh, restraining order, the the affidavit itself is kind of the place where you get to tell your story of what has happened. And I would always tell them that they as as hard as it might be, they need to be as specific as possible. Um, and you reference referenced they can attach certain evidentiary items like pictures and things like that. But, you know, tell people what information needs to go into that affidavit.
1: So the court wants to see that you've been subjected to a continuous threat of present physical pain or physical injury or stalking or a pattern of stalking. So whatever there is that proves that to the court is what you put in. And sometimes, you know, like somebody might've said to you, I'm going to kill you. Don't come home. And that might not mean anything, but if you know that a year ago, the two of you had a fight and he purchased a gun, and now he's saying that, that like, it's important to say that, you know, to give a little background in history also, um, because sometimes it doesn't happen in a vacuum. You may have had other instances where the person was abusive to you and just not reported because not everything gets reported. People make up and, you know, they kind of hush things over and go on with their lives. But I think you have to definitely put in a little bit of a background and then put as much detail as possible about what's going on right now. Does he have a GPS tracker on your car? Is he ghost copying and reading all your text messages? Like, what is it that he's doing that's making you fearful?
0: Yeah, it's so important. And it's that imminent, that fear of imminent harm, right? That's what listeners need to understand. When you're going into court and the other person does not at that time, because it's ex parte, have the opportunity to defend themselves, you, this is, this is extreme. The whole reason the court has created this avenue for you to go and get this order is because you have to be in fear and have reasonable grounds to believe that imminently this person is going to harm you. And so you need to give that factual Basis for a judge to sort of, I'm going to say, hang their robe on, right? Hang their gavel on, so that they can issue this, right? Because they're going to issue it. I think you said in Connecticut, it's for an initial two-week, 14-day time period where the other person is has no ability to defend themselves, but you need to put in there. You know, I, I think your example was was perfect, right? Two a year ago, my spouse or partner purchased a firearm. Um, six months ago, they punched the wall next to my head during an argument. Um, I've had that happen in a number of cases where they were not physically violent with you, but they were six inches away from your head or something when they punched the wall. And that type of information on you know, June 5th, they grabbed my arm so hard that it left bruising. I've attached a picture. Usually, as you said, unfortunately, domestic violence is not a one-time thing and it doesn't happen in a vacuum. So it's important to set out all of those reasons. Um, I think you use the word continuous pattern of abuse or harm. So that's that affidavit. Because again, in at least in Connecticut, you're not going to see the judge for this initial order. It's your paperwork that's going to go in front of a judge who's probably sitting in their chambers
1: you know, drinking a cup of coffee and reading through these, right? Absolutely. I, when I was a uh, clerk right after law school, I used to walk the restraining orders up to the judge and, you know, while walking up the flight of stairs, I would read it. And there's certain things that just stand out in certain restraining orders where you see the red flags, like this is dangerous this person, you know, her or his life is at risk here. And you have to convey that message.
0: Any type of physical abuse, stalking, and we'll talk about what stalking is in a minute, but there are certain things, you know, where someone hurts you in some way, you know, they punch you, they slap you, they kick you, they bite you, they push you. Certain things that are gonna jump off the page to a judge because when someone is physically violent, they are often, again, physically violent. So those are definitely those things that you want to get in there. But you did mention stalking. Now, not every state includes stalking behaviors as a predicate for a restraining order. Um, Connecticut, we're lucky that they do. But let's talk a little bit about stalking, because that's a very common behavior in domestic violence as well.
1: Yeah, so stalking could be you live at the end of a cul-de-sac and you notice the the car driving around your house twice a day, or You know, it's coincidental that every time you're leaving school, you see somebody or it could be an ex-boyfriend or you feel followed or you feel like they know your movements. And today with technology, there's so many ways that somebody can can stalk you. And, you know, people put out public information. I'm at the gym. I'm working out. Well, you're letting people know where you are. But be careful. You know, it might be getting into the wrong hands also.
2: Yeah,
0: well, and that's a good point just for everyone out there. General advice, we've done an episode on this. Get off your social media. If you're going through a domestic violence or a, a domestic matter, a divorce, a separation, co-parenting issues, don't be on social media. But certainly if you are in fear of physical or you know, harm from your intimate partner or a family member, you almost give them a map to track you by posting see me working out see me walking through whole foods i remember a client i had back and this is oh so many years ago and this is actually before connecticut had stalking um, as a part of our restraining order so that says it's probably like 20 years ago or so but her husband every night would go park out in the street outside her house to see if she had any company coming over. He had guns and you know there was a great deal of fear that was engendered around it. There were some other complicating factors in that, but you know we had to go to court and get a restraining order. It was harder in that particular case because there was no physical harm and stalking behaviors were not recognized at that time. Um, we did get it, but it, it took a, it took a lot more effort than an ex parte motion.
1: It doesn't just have to be physical abuse to you. It could be like somebody slashed your car tires or broke your rear view mirror because you might not have proof of it, but if you couple that with other facts that have been going on, you might be able to assume that it was this person that slashed my tires. That car is an extension of you, you know, harm to that car or to your pet is harm to you.
0: Yeah. Well, and, oh, I, I'm so glad you brought up the pets. Because uh, this is just a, a very pervasive issue in domestic violence cases where the abuser will not harm you, but will go after your beloved pet. And there's a variety, you know, it's a way of controlling the victim. Your behaviors will be modified because you're acting out of fear that your pet's going to be harmed. Many domestic violence victims will not leave because they can't take their pet with them or protect their pet. And abusers know how to how to get to you, right? They know what's valuable or important to you and your pet is. So restraining orders can cover pets in some states. That's right, and children also. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to put pets above children, everyone. So don't send me DMs on this. I was just <laughs> and that is important to realize as well. Those even a temporary restraining order can have orders protecting your children. In the household or other members of the household and may even put into place a you know a bar on parenting time um if they feel the children are imminent harm but you have to include reason to believe the children are in danger
1: don't you you have to show that he was also abusive towards the children or that they witnessed this abuse or that they could have been hurt by his actions
0: good point there about witnessing the abuse Because that's a form of actual abuse to the children, right? When mom or dad or partner is being abused physically or, you know, verbally in front of children,
1: that is actually abusive to the children as well, right? It definitely is. And that DCF here in Connecticut would probably get involved and take some action if they knew that the children were witnessing this abuse also. Right. And unfortunately... In our households,
0: especially, you know, during COVID where we've all been trapped in our homes together, which has also led to a big rise in unfortunately in domestic violence incidents. But so often now the kids weren't away at school because they were homeschooling, uh, video learning, uh, remote learning. And so not only has domestic violence gone up, but children's exposure to domestic violence in the home has gone up.
2: Hey, it's Kate Anthony over at the Divorce Survival Guide. Susan said it would be okay to pop in and talk to you really quickly about my new program, the Divorce Survival Program. See what I did there? Look, once you've decided to get a divorce, you may feel a sense of relief. The decision is finally made, but at the same time, you're likely feeling a sense of foreboding, of what's ahead. There's a huge mountain left to climb and if you've never gotten divorced before, especially divorced with kids, there's a lot that you don't know. You need a deep dive into the divorce process. Stat. That's why you're listening to this podcast right now. That's also why I created the Divorce Survival Program. In the Divorce Survival Program, you'll learn how to have the most difficult conversations of your life with your husband, your children, friends, families, and even nosy neighbors. You'll learn how to set healthy boundaries in high and low conflict divorces. You'll learn how the legal and financial processes really work whether you should or can seek support, and you'll be taken through the process of emotional healing. And of course, you'll learn how to start dating on the other side. In this one-of-its-kind program, I bring together top experts from around the country, including the amazing Susan Guthrie, who share their wisdom in exclusive interviews not available anywhere else. And of course, there are over 20 videos in which I speak directly to you, answering your most pressing questions. The Divorce Survival Program is a self-paced online program available for purchase now at divorcesurvivalprogram.com. And if you use the code SUSAN, you'll get $50 off the already super low price now through the end of the year. Again, that's divorcesurvivalprogram.com and use the code SUSAN when you check out. And now back to Susan's amazing episode.
1: Stay tuned for more from Susan and her guest, attorney Uswa Khan, who shares all you need to know when it comes to restraining orders. This is your story and your truth, and you have to let it out and just align yourself with the proper support system that you need to help you get through this. And, And there's people out there to help you. If you are enjoying this episode, check out how to include the voices of children in the divorce process, with child specialist Kathleen Zampano.
0: And when I got trained right out of grad school in divorce work and collaborative divorce work, it just didn't make sense to me that they weren't taking children's perspectives into the divorce process. For me, you talk about bringing children's voice in as sort of mind-blowing for the attorneys. For me, it was
2: mind-blowing that they were making decisions about children's childhoods without having really any idea How the children were experiencing the process
1: and now we return to today's show
0: so we've gone through this process of filling out the paperwork and i do want people to know just go to your clerk's office in your local courthouse they're going to have the papers for you or go online i think i know connecticut i know california i imagine almost every state has those forms available to you to fill out pdf form right online Um, so you don't even need to go to
1: the courthouse yeah, you don't need to go to court. The courthouse, they do have um, some victims' rights offices in the courthouse sometimes, and they will help you fill out the form in the proper way, and you know, help you marshal your evidence so that. It- Presents a compelling story for the judge. That's a good point. A lot, a, a lot of courthouses have a,
0: a victim's right advocate or somebody who can be there to help you. Many of them will also have online guides that are going to talk to you about much of what we're talking about here. So definitely do a little bit of research and Google, you know, just domestic violence resources. And again, I'm going to put some of those into the show notes because I want them to be easily accessible to everyone. But I can't put the You know the court system for every single state into the show notes, or my show notes would be 100 pages long. But I do want to point out, once you've filled out all those forms, and in theory, they've gone in front of a judge in some fashion, depending on your state, and been signed by the judge. The judge says, yes, this is a case where I'm going to issue a temporary restraining order. It is important to understand that just the signing is not the final step to make that an effective order. There's one more step and you referenced it. The person who's being restrained needs to be notified.
1: Right, and there's usually a marshal in the courthouse at a certain time designated for just having these restraining orders served. And the court staff will let you know, come back at four o'clock, give this to the marshal, the
0: marshal will have it served. So I do want to make sure people understand, um, and we'll talk a bit more about what you said, the paperwork has been signed now by a judge, but there's a further step that you mentioned with a marshal. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So each courthouse will have a marshal or a sheriff or a process server. They'll tell you how to access one so that they can serve notice on the person that you filed the restraining order against, because That restraining order is only effective for two weeks but there's a hearing date set on that paperwork and so the person that you filed this restraining order against has to be notified about that hearing date so that they can come to court and defend themselves. At the end of that two-week period
0: one thing that i always would tell clients especially when they were going in ex parte so they didn't have counsel is to make sure to give that marshal or sheriff or process server as much information about the whereabouts of where they might find
1: the person in order to serve them right definitely because uh if they're not served they're not going to show up to the hearing in two weeks and then you're going to be asking the judge to continue the restraining order for another two weeks so that you can find him or her
0: right exactly and i don't want to talk about the restraining orders as if they are only ever issued against men restraining orders are issued against anyone and everyone who is perpetrating abusive behaviors very often that is women um we you know women do this as well and i've had restraining orders to protect men served against women, so I don't in any way want people to think domestic violence is just a, a man perpetrated on female type of phenomenon. But unfortunately, statistics say it's a greater preponderance of the of the d- domestic abuse that we see. Let's talk about that additional hearing. So this later two in Connecticut two week, and and I think most states are around that fourteen days. That you know because it's such an extreme remedy to bar this person in certain ways, restrain this person's rights to, you know, see their children be in their home, do certain things. The court wants to be certain they have
1: their day in court. So there will be this hearing, what happens there? Typically before the hearing starts in Connecticut, there's a family relations office and you go to them, you present your side of the story, they talk to you, then they will talk to the abuser. They will run a lethality assessment to see if the person's had any other uh, arrests or previous restraining orders, not just against you, but against other people as well. Sometimes people reach an agreement. The abuser might say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this. Here's an agreement. I'm going to stay away from you for six months, for a year. And you go up to the judge, you present the agreement, and you're on your way. If you don't have an agreement, then family relations will let the judge know there's no agreement the parties are coming up for a hearing and that's your time to go in front of the judge and just speak your truth you have to tell the judge that same story that you wrote on the affidavit but now you're not limited to a page or two you're limited to a person actually listening to you observing your behavior observing the other person's response to you as you're talking about your story and so all that is, real, is very important.
0: And, and they're usually there in the courtroom, right? So the person that you have the restraining order against that you're seeking to extend the time period of that restraining order is sitting at the other table in most cases.
1: In most cases, Connecticut has allowed where you can file a form and request to not be in the same room and, you know, like show up on a screen in front of the judge. But I still think it's more effective to be in person in front of that judge because you want to show your emotions, but I think the reaction from the other side is just as important sometimes.
0: That is the other part of that hearing, right? They have that opportunity now to present their side of of what has happened. Part of that may be trying to refute your evidence, saying that well that doesn't tell the whole story or that's, you know, that's not true. And and so you have to be prepared for that as well.
1: You do. And you know, they might bring their own witnesses to testify against you. So you just have to calculate in your mind that this person is going to come in with his best friend they're going to come in with a video of me or text messages of me. Nobody wants a restraining order, so they want to prove themselves innocent. And it's your job, not job, but you know, you have to show the judge why you need that restraining order. So if you have text messages, print them out, bring them as evidence. If you have pictures of abuse or pictures of the, the hole, you know, he punched into the wall, you print that out, you bring it, you show the judge those. If you have recorded something, you know, like a picture's a thousand wor- worth a thousand words, but a video is just, you know, it just tells the whole story, as long as it's the complete video, because you don't want the other side to show, well, your honor, yes, she showed you what happened the last 10 minutes, but the first 30 minutes, this is what was going on.
0: And, and I wanna say, we're not trying to dissuade people from seeking the restraining orders. Just understand the ex parte is just you and what you have to say. When you come in for that later hearing, it's now both sides of the story. So expect that. Be prepared for that. And videos, you know, one of the, the uh, most potent videos I ever had in a case was the one from someone's doorbell camera you know, they just happened to check. They had forgotten they even had one of those ring doorbells and it showed, um, you know, what happened on that doorstep. And I I don't want to go into the detail, but, you know, as you say, a video is worth more than a picture and you may have more video than you think. It's not just uh, our little electronic devices. These days, there's video almost everywhere.
1: And and another point is sometimes the police might have been called and you might have a police report and you definitely would want to subpoena that police officer so you can get that police report into evidence if it's favorable to you.
0: That was an important point you just made about the police report and the police officer. Maybe go into that a little bit more. As
1: a victim, you can get a copy of your police report but you can't get that in front of the judge unless the police officer is there to testify that that was the officer and he observed this and he's the one that wrote this in the normal course of business as his duty as a police officer. So you would have to subpoena that police officer so that they you can have that report admitted into evidence.
0: Right, and I suggest that's such a key and critical point. How many times have we been in a courtroom and a pro se party or a self-represented party is there with a very impactful police report and they can't get it in front of the judge because they don't have the police officer there? So understand, you need to bring the actual witness. That's the police officer. There's a whole process in place for getting a subpoena to bring that police officer in. It happens all the time. Find out what that process is. Check with your clerk's office, your domestic violence center, your support center, your attorney. But you know, find that out so that your evidence is the best that it can be. And a police report can be
1: extremely impactful. Absolutely. But make sure you read it before you submit it into evidence, because there might be something on there that you don't want the court to know.
0: Yes. And that's true. Uh, And you, by the way, you don't get to redact portions and only submit the parts you like, just as you don't get to show only or you might not have the opportunity to show 10 minutes of a video when 30 minutes um, the The first 20 minutes doesn't cast you in a good light. Always understand that if the evidence is out there, it might be out there on both sides. So trying to play the system may come back to, you know, I would imagine in your case, your client's credibility took a bit of a hit when they didn't reveal what happened in the first part of
1: that argument. Absolutely. And you have to be mindful about social media posts also because some people post things, on facebook that are public i can go in there and print it out and if i'm posting things about somebody's girlfriend or just anything that may, that makes me look like maybe i'm not that much of a victim or i'm not really scared of this person who i'm claiming to be scared of that's something you have to be really mindful of yeah it's such
0: a good point and it brings up something else that is super common right these are people who are in intimate relationships so they get into a fight or they get into an altercation, somebody gets a restraining order, and then a couple of days down the road, they get together. Somebody comes over, they start making contact, nobody complains. What effect does that have on that 14 day hearing? And you know, another question I used to get from people is, are they gonna get in trouble as the person who got the restraining order for violating it?
1: I would say if you are going or you're getting back together, that you withdraw that restraining order application because it's it's more harmful to the person you filed the restraining order against because if you and this person have a fight and you call the police, that person's now committed a felony and it's a criminal offense. So it's best if you withdraw that restraining order application. So nobody, I mean, you know, your credibility will be out the window if you have to file a subsequent restraining order application.
0: Well, and that's why, you know, you need to take it seriously, but you also, when you are allow, you know, you go to the lengths of getting this extreme remedy of a restraining order, and then you act as if it were unnecessary by allowing that person back into your home, into your, you know, your life your credibility at that 14 day hearing, I mean, what are the chances you're actually going to have a judge say, well, obviously we need to continue this. She's, or he's in Im- fear of imminent harm and or physical danger. You're not, if you've allowed this person to be around
1: as a counsel representing the person who the restraining order was granted against. I've used that, that argument that, you know, you weren't in fear when you asked him for a ride, day five of the restraining order. You weren't in fear when you asked him to drop off food for you. So are you, tell me now, like, are you in fear today?
0: Right. Well, and it's, you know, it's an extremely common situation. So I'm not, again, I don't want that to come across as victim blaming or I'm just saying be aware of the consequences, ultimately, to all of the actions. This is very complicated emotional stuff for people. We are bonded with our abusers in many ways, or you know, people are. And it can be very difficult to break that connection, even when you have that restraining order. But in your best interest, certainly in your children's best interests, sometimes maybe you have to make that break.
1: Yeah. And you know, that's why uh, family justice centers all over the country are so amazing because they give you all that support in one place. Like if you need a safe house, they can get you a safe house. If you need counseling, you can get counseling. If you need food, they might have a food pantry. If you need a lawyer, they might have a lawyer on site that they can refer you to. And, uh, you know, counseling is probably the key to helping your own mindset and to help you grow out of this, you know, horrific time period that you've been engaged in it is such a int-
0: intrinsic and intractable issue, right? Because it's a slippery slope with abuse. It doesn't usually start out at this high level of physical harm. It's, you know, they start to cut you off from those who are around you. They cut you off from money. They cut, you know, they, they start to belittle and, and denigrate your, your inner, you know, feelings about yourself and, by the time it gets to a violent, abusive situation, you are often broken down in many, many ways. And so that counseling, just to understand and start to gather your strength to crawl back out of that is so critical. And the Family Justice Centers are wonderful. I am going to link to that resource um, in the show notes for everyone, as well as I do want to mention the National Domestic Violence Hotline. I'll have that number in there as well. One last thing I want to hit on is what happens when... There is a restraining order in place, be it the temporary initial one for the 14 days or a, an extended
1: version, and
0: somebody does violate it.
1: So that's when um, you call 911, or if if it's not something that you need to call the police for, you go into the police station, you file a report. You, they usually have a copy of that restraining order in the central registry, but if you bring it with you, that's fine also. And you let them know how the person's violated it. And then it becomes a criminal matter, criminal court gets involved and they will, um, it, I mean, it's a felony. So that person has to go to court
0: then and show up. Right, so now it's gone into a completely different court system in that criminal court. And I just wanna to say to people, you know. If you are in fear, if someone is violating a restraining order or if you don't have a restraining order but you feel that you are in danger, your children are in danger, call 911 and see and do what you can to remove yourself and your children from the situation as quickly as possible. Seek Help, don't be afraid to call 911. It is probably the most important thing that you can do. I'm going to do an additional episode on just domestic violence awareness, the the most dangerous time They know is when you try to leave. By dangerous, I mean fatal. That is when most uh, homicides occur in domestic violence situations and or serious physical harm. And so I'm going to have a whole episode on how to, you know, an exit plan, how to safely get out. But the restraining order is a tool that is there to protect you. It, it takes a lot to go there and tell your story, even to put it on paper. But it is one of the most helpful ways to start helping you to protect yourself, your children, your pets, and and get your life back. So you know, Oswa, thank you so much for coming and sharing you know your experience and this this advice for my listeners. It is a topic that is even hard to talk about you know, for us, because we've seen people, you especially for the past couple of years, right? Every day who are in this place, it is a scary, dark place. And there is hope you've seen people get out, you know, so maybe share just a few words for the people who are listening.
1: Yeah. You know, you're not alone and it, this is your story and your truth and you have to let it out and just align yourself with the proper support system that you need to help you get through this. And you will get through it because that's why there's, you know, there's so many survivors out there who have gone to the other side and are able to tell their story. And there's people out there to help you. So I love
0: that. I'm going to leave it on that. Everyone, you are not alone.